0: Everyone has one, or almost everyone. Even grown adults cling to them everywhere they go. For some people, they are more important than pretty much anything else. Spouses, children, food, safety, everything is secondary to the almighty smartphone. It's addictive and it's dangerous. Despite all the naysayers, the fact is, science is building a strong case about the impact of wireless radiation on our health. It's not just smartphones, of course. It's Wi-Fi, it's tablets, it's 5G, and everything else in this increasingly wireless world. While big corporations are making billions in profits, a growing number of people are being harmed by this radiation, and many are experiencing neurological problems, reproductive problems, and even cancer. This is a national public health emergency in slow motion. And this is Green Street.
1: Hello again, and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, researchers, authors, educators, and activists, all here on Green Street to help you understand what in the world is going on and how you and your family can live a better, safer, and healthier life in this increasingly toxic world. Today on Green Street, we're delighted to welcome one of the true pioneers in the world of environmental health, Dr. Deborah Davis. Deborah was part of the team of scientists awarded the Nobel Peace Prize along with Al Gore, but she's probably best known for her important early work on wireless radiation and its impacts on human health. Over the years, we've become good friends with Deborah, and it's going to be fun to have her back on the show. But first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us
0: today? First one, published in The Guardian, written by John Henley, and the title is Europe's Rivers Run Dry, as scientists warn drought could be the worst in 500 years. In places, the Loire Riverbed can now be crossed on foot. France's longest river has never flowed so slowly. The Rhine is fast becoming impassable to barge traffic. In Italy, the Po River is two meters lower than normal, crippling crops. Serbia is dredging the Danube. Across Europe, drought is reducing once mighty rivers to trickles with potentially dramatic consequences for industry, freight, energy and food production. Driven by climate breakdown, an unusually dry winter and spring followed by record breaking summer temperatures and repeated heat waves have left Europe's essential waterways under replenished and increasingly overheated. With no significant rainfall recorded for almost two months across Western, Central, and Southern Europe and none forecast in the near future, meteorologists say the drought could become the continent's worst in more than 500 years. While the EU has said boosting waterborne freight by 25% is one of its green transition priorities, Germany is now working to divert it to rail and road, although between 40 and 100 trucks are needed to replace a standard barge load. France's rivers might not be such key freight arteries, but they do serve to cool the nuclear plants that produce 70% of the country's electricity. Strict rules regulate how far nuclear plants can raise river temperatures when they discharge cooling water. And if record low water levels and high air temperatures mean the river is already overheated, they have no option but to cut output. With Europe's looming energy crisis mounting and the Garonne, Rhone, and Loire rivers already too warm to allow cooling water to be discharged, the French nuclear regulator last week allowed five plans to temporarily break the rules.
1: This is a gigantic problem.
0: This is a gen- I mean, con- these are consequences that are little known yeah, to the public. Okay, we it. never think about things like this, but clearly these are emergency issues right now all across Europe. I mean, we hear about rising seas and you know droughts and heat domes and migration, but rivers.
1: And we know, we've been in Europe quite a few times. We've seen how much traffic goes on those rivers. You know, these big barges carrying everything. What did it say? Between 40 and 100 trucks to replace one barge. Between
0: 40 and 100 trucks on the road.
1: To replace one barge. Are
0: needed to replace a standard barge on a river.
1: And I know that was a big part of their, you know, climate, you know, addressing thing was we're going to put more stuff on barges. Not Correct. if there's no water.
0: Not if the water is so low. Holy cow. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, um, my second article is equally frightening. Uh, This is uh, published in peer.org, which is the website for the public employees for environmental responsibility. That's what peer stands for. And the title is PFAS Contamination Study Yields Frightening Results. Environmental contamination of per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, has exceeded a new planetary boundary which is environmental limits within which humans can survive, according to a study published this month. Levels of PFOA and PFOS in rainwater exceed the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's health advisory levels and is contaminating soils, surface waters and drinking water. The authors caution that soils are already contaminated with PFAS due to atmospheric deposition. But if soils are amended with biosolids, PFAS levels in soils will increase and PFAS will leach into surface waters, groundwater and drinking water. Many scientists assumed that PFAS would eventually reach the ocean, where they would be diluted and be relatively harmless. But certain PFAS, including the four in this study, can be significantly enriched on sea spray aerosols and transported in the atmosphere back to shore, where they will be deposited and contaminated freshwater drinking water and surface soils. In other words, the cycle of PFAS in the hydrosphere means that levels of PFAS in rainwater will be practically Irreversible. Well, we just had a conversation with Dr. Linda Birnbaum, and she says there are about 12,000 PFAS chemicals out there in the world of manufacturing and industry. And, you know, we know of them as non stick products like Teflon for cooking, you know, pans and so on, also as water stain and grease resistant coatings on food packaging and so on but also on clothing and that's huge is that you know it anything that says water resistant or stain resistant or grease resistant you know that you purchase for your children is loaded with PFAS I mean just last week we talked about toilet paper you know, containing Patty, PFAS.
1: Patty, this is like, uh, you know, all the scientists have their hair on fire I over PFAS. I know, I know, I know. And it seemed to come along, I mean, from an outsider's perspective, it seemed to come along pretty quickly just in the past couple of years. It's really ramped well, up. Well,
0: yes, because they're beginning to find it in, in our water. And that's why, that's why it's problematic, because mm. you really can't get it out of water very easily. You're going to need some kind of a reverse osmosis system. And who can afford that?
1: Yeah, Really? Okay. Okay, and my last article
0: is from Beyond Pesticides from their okay. newsletter, and the title is Take Action to Preserve Local Democracy and the Right for Communities to Restrict Pesticide Use. The pesticide industry has selected August as Anti Democracy Month, <laughs> as it launches a month long campaign to undermine yeah. local control over pesticides the National Pest Management Association is encouraging members to lobby members of Congress in August to support H.R. 7266, which will, quote, prohibit local regulations relating to the sale, distribution, labeling, application, or use of any pesticide or device, end quote, subject to state or federal regulation under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, often known as FIFRA. The fight to defend the authority of local governments to protect people and the environment has been ongoing for decades, reaching the U.S. Supreme Court in 1991. The court specifically upheld the authority of local governments to restrict pesticides throughout their jurisdictions under federal pesticide law. The impacts for public health and ecological stability would be devastating beyond pesticides urges you to make august preserve local democracy month by participating in actions in support of allowing communities to protect themselves from chemical exposure when state and federal regulation is inadequate tell your u.s representative and senators to support communities by opposing hr 7266 this is crazy where does this go i mean we just passed this new york city law This New York City law, which goes into effect on November 22nd of this year, which will prohibit the use of chemical pesticides in all 3000 plus parks across all five boroughs. And what happens if this law 7266 gets passed by this Congress?
1: They didn't like your legislation, Patty. They didn't like the, the New York City this ban on glyphosate. This is such liposyte. an
0: egregious overreach of an no industry kidding. that is known to be poisoning our water, killing wildlife, including pollinators, and you know, and and putting you know humans at risk. I mean, especially our kids. Yeah. You know, and and what about pest pets? Pets, and we just put a pets and pesticides card out. And we're getting it out to, you know, vets and veterinary clinics and veterinary hospitals all over the place to warn them about, about not letting their dogs and cats play or sleep on grass that has been treated with pesticides. Ay, 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 What, What else? That's what I want to know. What else?
1: All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. As most of you probably know, Patty and I have been working in the field of environmental health for a while now, and in the course of our work, we've run into some pretty remarkable people, but none more remarkable than the person you are about to meet. Dr. Deborah Davis is the founder and president of the Environmental Health Trust, currently visiting professor of medicine at the Hebrew University Hadassah Medical School in Jerusalem. Dr. Davis lectures at the University of California, San Francisco and Berkeley, Dartmouth, Georgetown, Harvard, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and other major universities around the world. She's the author of more than 200 publications in books and journals and we were honored to work with Deborah to create the BabySafe project back in 2014. And we've continued our close collaboration on a variety of other projects ever since then. And we asked her to start at the beginning. Here's our interview with Dr. Deborah Davis.
2: I grew up in a very polluted town called Donora. Pennsylvania, which actually has a place in world history as one of the early sites for where industrial air pollution killed people uh, in one five-day period of time in October of 1948. Twenty people dropped dead, and for some time afterwards, there was an elevated death rate. This happened as a result of a combination of smoke and fumes from coke ovens and steel mills and the zinc plant and diesel engines and trucks and things that were used inside the plant. And it, that the small town of Denora on the Monongahela Valley burned as much coal in one week as the 10 times larger town of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm. where steelmaking also took place. Mm-hmm. But Denora mm-hmm. was an unusual concentration because it not only had steelmaking there with barges coming through the river with the supplies, But it also had coke ovens, which is one of the most toxic producing materials used in industrial manufacturing. And it had a zinc plant. And zinc in the air is acutely toxic. And in order to create zinc, you actually have a highly reactive production of fluoride gas. And fluoride gas um, is incredibly toxic. So when I looked at the pathology slides of some of the survivors of Genora, which I was able to see, those lungs and those images looked just like the people who had died of poison gas warfare.
0: Good grief! Oh, the and there was a there was an inversion, an air inversion, isn't it? What that what is actually correct. happened on that day? And and you actually wrote a book about this, an award-winning
2: I book. When smoke, Thank you. when smoke, and then smoke ran like, ran water. like
0: water. Exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah, and that book tells the story of how I discovered this after I left the town at age fourteen, when the mill shut down and people didn't have work anymore, and my father and mother moved our family of four children, to the great big city of Pittsburgh, where there was much more um, financial opportunities. Mm-hmm. And we all are concerned that what happened in Denora with this massive inversion of air pollution and a stationary mass of air for five days is happening now in India and China, mm-hmm. in mid-sized cities, yeah. and nobody's counting. Yeah, And not mm-hmm. everything that really counts can be counted but we can count the bodies and so the answer to your question is i've spent my life learning how to count the bodies and i also became um expert in toxicology understanding how chemical and physical agents can affect human health and the environment not limited to living uh, the human environment but in fact the trees Mm -hmm. and the bees Mm -hmm. and the birds Mm -hmm. and all the other things uh, that allow us um, to prosper.
1: So, you know, you're the author of this book, Disconnect, which has really kind of was one of the first books on the scene to really talk about the issue of wireless radiation from cell phones and how it was affecting people. Let's talk a little bit about, about that, the origin right. of the book, the reason for it. And,
0: and then the rest
2: is and history, that right? That will unwa- unleash an <laughs> yeah. avalanche of information. Sure. Well, my first grandchild was born and um, when he was nine months old he could uh take a phone that was turned off turn it on and play a game Mm -hmm. um at first like most grandparents i thought oh wow what a bright child no this was 15 and a half years ago but i had worked for the cdc on the lead poisoning advisory committee to set the standards for lead and i had was well aware of the vulnerability of the rapidly developing brain so i began to look into what we knew about cell phone radiation in the brain. And the more I looked, the more worried I became. And so I wrote the book to bring others to the uh, attention to this fact. I was then working at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute, director of the Center for Environmental Oncology. And my boss was Ronald Herberman, who was a very open-minded, brilliant scientist, one of the most cited scientists at the time in the world. and. He encouraged me to write this book, which I thought was wonderful, but I soon realized that not all scientists were so broad minded and supportive. <laughs> unfortunately. And that mm. is how we founded Environmental Health Trust, by the way, because it became apparent to me that if you wanted to really try to work independently you needed some institution that could function independently. And while right. we are
0: some structure modestly,
2: right? you know, funded, you know, by donations mostly from private sources. We've occasionally had government grants, but not in the past 10 years, I should add. So that's why we founded the Environmental Health Trust to carry out this kind of research that needs to be done and to provide the general public and the scientific and medical communities information on the latest science concerning um, cell phones and other forms of wireless radiation.
1: So tell us about the reaction when the book came out. What (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to hear this. Well, there
2: were some people um, like Ellie Marks in San Francisco, whom I had been working with, you know, as as the book was being developed, who were very enthusiastic. There were a number of young people who are no longer alive, like Jimmy Gonzalez and Brett Bocook, who were wildly enthusiastic. They're now dead because they had brain tumors associated with their cell phones. But I'd have to say that, unlike my other two books, which, on which I was on NPR, All Things Considered, Terry Gross, Diane Rehm, this book, Silence, was deafening.
0: So now we are in a place where we have this information. You and your colleagues are quite convinced that this is a huge public health threat. And how do we get this information out when we have a Uh, an agency, um, the FCC in Washington, who is in bed with the telecom industry, and they don't want this information to get out.
2: That is a very good question, and I think that thanks to what you are doing in this show and elsewhere, um, I think we've made progress, but the real progress will be made when our lawsuit is decided um, successfully, and we are now in court where we are suing the FCC for their failure to provide adequate protection.
1: A reminder for our listeners this recording took place before the court decided in favor of Environmental Health Trust and other petitioners and sent the FCC back to reconsider its decision, this time taking into account recent science suggesting serious health risks from exposure to RF radiation. We are still awaiting a revised decision from the FCC.
2: But you have to look at what is the mission of the FCC. Its mission is to expand telecommunications throughout the country.
1: Well, At, it, it, it has yeah. a bifurcated mission, right? It has the, it has the responsibility of, of doing that, but it also has a, a public health responsibility to protect public health.
2: Well, you and I would agree that that responsibility has never, never been met. Mm-hmm. And last year, what happened in December is they preemptorily issued a rulemaking that said, we have decided we do not need to update our standards for cell phone protection that that actually were first developed in the 20th century and haven't been much changed since then. They actually had the temerity to say that public health can be protected with standards from the 20th century for technology that did not even exist then and is now leading the way in the 21st century.
0: And there is no comparison to the amount of radiation that we are exposed to now?
2: None. Absolutely not. It's, Absolutely. And not only is it, is it amount of radiation, but I would stress it's the pulsed nature of the signals which are not regular and can be, and be very erratic. And now with 5G, there is the new technology that involves beam forming, yeah. which while it sounds more efficient, there's no standard for what it really consists of. There's no accessible way of measuring it and the impacts on public health and the environment are not fully understood, but there are signs through peer-reviewed studies that this new technology could be even more damaging than the one that we already have, that we know can be damaging from studies that have been done by the U.S. government in their national toxicology program, as well as studies by other governments in France and Belgium. And Italy, Mm -hmm. in the courts of Italy, have ruled in favor of a man who developed a brain tumor as a result of his occupational use of the cell phone. Mm. Now you add to that the fact that you cannot get insurance or damages from electromagnetic fields if you are a company. There's no secondary insurance because the companies have decided, uh, led by Swiss Re, one of the largest global secondary insurers in the world, the companies have decided that the risk is too high. In fact, before COVID, Swiss reissued a report where it termed the risks from 5G to be off the leash, mm. meaning completely like a dog out of control.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, a lot of, and a lot of those risks at that time were unknown, but they, were, they, were, they knew that there, were, that there were significant risks then, and then, wow, what else is going to yep. happen?
2: Yeah, and I would say it's not that there, that there are, of course, there's much that's unknown. There always is in science, and we always need more money and more research. However, we know enough to know that we should be concerned. The weight of the scientific and health evidence at this time justifies concerns, and that is why the FCC's action in December of last year, where they said there's no reason for us to change our 24-year-old standards, That action is unacceptable, and we're challenging it in a lawsuit with Children's Health Defense that we have mounted. And that lawsuit is critically important that it move ahead because the public is being denied the right to know critical information, and we believe that current policies are endangering ourselves and our kids.
1: It has always seemed to me, Deborah, that the scientists generally are like lawyers are able to hold a couple of different ideas in their in their head at the same time and certainly for scientists there's never certainty right i mean scientists generally that i know are always open to understanding that uh, or to learning more and understanding that they don't know everything and there's likely to have new information coming along all the time the fcc's action kind of makes it clear that it wasn't a scientific decision because you know, we've got all this new science that has come out, and yet the FCC is saying, "No, we're going to keep the same standards that were developed 30 years ago. We're not hmm. going to, we're not going to change." I just wonder, doesn't this kind of make it clear that there aren't scientists who are behind this decision? This is a, a more of a political decision.
2: Well, I don't think there's any question about that. You're absolutely correct. Remember that the FCC's primary mission is to regulate the use of radio communications right. and operation of equipment. Well, I would That's th- their primary mission. I would That's
1: think it. most most people would assume that they've got scientists that can that can attest to the safety of this equipment. If the, if the FCC is going to put their seal on it and say right. we think this is safe, I mean, a natural, you know, well, every it every would,
0: school in the country, every school yep. in the country feels we are aware. secure feel secure in the knowledge mm-hmm. that the equipment that they're using has been, has been approved yeah. by the FCC. But they don't have any scientists,
1: do they?
2: The FCC, in recent years, has lost one of the most knowledgeable employees they ever had in this field. He happens to have been almost the only one with training in public health and electrical engineering. Uh, they may have one more now. But the fact is they have one person. That one person was supposed to be in charge of reviewing all the evidence submitted to the record on this case, which was a docket opened by the agency uh, in 2013 that was closed without explanation. Now, the Administrative Procedure Act says government agencies must act rationally, a hard look at the submitted record, and make the information publicly accessible. And on all three counts, the FCC has failed, as we make clear in our lawsuit. They certainly did not act rationally because they did not look at all of the submitted materials of which there were 1,900 pages. And they certainly did not take into account the overview of the, all of that information. Uh, instead, it was like that we were being like pontifical and they ex cathedra issued a statement, we don't need to look at this in any detail. That's a clear violation of the Administrative Procedure Act, which since the 1940s has stipulated that agencies must show evidence of a record of decision-making and evaluation let me give you one example that you may may be too much inside baseball but i think it's fascinating normally when large federal agents receive thousands of pages of submission they hire contractors to organize evaluate analyze and make recommendations because it's a large quantity of stuff
0: Mm -hmm. now
2: remember the fcc only has this one fte not only is there no evidence that they hired contractors to do that, but the management of their database for taking these records in and making them accessible is so fouled up that you cannot track materials from 2013 and 2019. They, they changed the management database system in the computer software. And each change, normally you have coding that allows you to go back and look at the other Mm -hmm. so that they they mesh together the FCC did no such thing and it's not possible to take a look at what they provide now we did this as part of our preparation for the lawsuit we've created um through Cindy Peck and others a really um accessible way of looking at all the things submitted but that's not our job that is the job of the FCC and they're not doing their job And the most recent decision that you're familiar with in the Berkeley right-to-know case is an appalling indication of the power of the manufacturing of doubt and the capacity to suppress science that this agency has. In particular, the Berkeley right-to-know law was first passed over many years of deliberation with Joel Moskowitz at Berkeley, myself, Lawrence Lessig, who actually wrote the law, at, at Harvard and defended it pro bono until recently. And that law very simply said you must post at the point of sale information about radiation from phones so that people can make intelligence decisions if they want how they use them. In particular, all phones come with warnings now in their operating systems that they're tested off the body and nobody is aware of that. So you see. You see many young people with phones close to their reproductive organs in tight clothing, unaware that there could be any problem with their exposure that is taking place as a result, and that the exposure to non-ionizing radiation from cell phones may be one of the factors behind the unexplained increase in colorectal cancer, which um, I have recently published an article on that can be found on our website, on the increased generational risk of colon and rectal cancer in people under the age of 40 in the United States. And we published this in the Annals of Gastroenterology and Digestive Disorders with Anthony B. Miller, one of the most distinguished epidemiologists in the world, and we looked at trends in rectal cancer and colon cancer in those under age 50 in the United States. And in the U.S., for those born in the 1990s, they have a doubled risk of colon cancer and a fourfold increase of rectal cancer mm. by the time they reach age 24.
0: And this is because they're putting their cell phones in their back pockets.
2: You know, Patty, I can't be sure what it's because All of, right. but I can tell you this. If something changes quickly in a short period of time, it's not inherited genes that are
0: mm-hmm, playing mm-hmm, a role. Mm-hmm.
2: And if you ask, what are, there are a number of cofactors for rectal cancer. Obesity is one of them. Diabetes might be another. So another could be the increased use of computerized tomography CAT scans, which in this generation, there's much more high exposures that have taken place before the pediatric radiologists understood that they had to really reduce those exposures.
1: You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show on WBAI, and our guest is Dr. Deborah Davis, the founder and president of Environmental Health Trust. Right. I want to go back to Berkeley for a second because you, you brought it up, and I just wanted to make it clear that the industry's response to the Berkeley uh, right-to-know law was, well, you don't need to put this up in stores because it's in our phone, and anybody who goes to the trouble can simply find it, and and that's what they're resting their lack of legal liability on is if you delve into your phone deep enough, you will find an advisory that says, do not hold this device against your body. And how many people know that? They don't.
2: Well, that's why your work and ours is so important. Yeah. So that's I, why you this know, effort th- to inform the schools right. is critically important because you will have children in schools whose teachers and parents do not know that computers... They're no longer called laptops. They do not belong on the lap mm-hmm. of anybody, but especially a young developing child. And parents do not understand that you do not want to give a child a cell phone unless it's an emergency. Um, before they're a responsible teen, and that age will depend
0: on how on, on how terrain. responsible the teen is. <laughs> I was just going to yes, say. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, when no you said responsible teen, I was like, oh yeah, good luck with yeah. that. Okay, yes, <laughs> they're kind of an
2: oxymoron. <laughs> right? Kind of an
0: oxymoron.
1: You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our very special guest today has been Dr. Deborah Davis, founder and president of Environmental Health Trust in an interview we recorded a few years ago. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of the show. Until then, be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.